morning's text, we're going to be, it's 1 Peter, again, it's page 10, uh, 1015, uh, 1 Peter chapter 2. We're gonna, I'm going to give sort of an overview of this section because it's a fairly large section of, te- of text. I'm going to split it into three different exhortations. As, as we've been speaking about, was, uh, t- I think we've had two uh, sermons that I've given in 1 Peter and then... Uh, uh, what last week one preached for us did a wonderful job speaking to us about the first part of chapter two. I'm going to carry us on through uh, beginning in verse eleven, uh, and we're going to go through the end of chapter three. You know, it never ceases to amaze me how countercultural the Bible is. Not just countercultural, but how counterintuitive the Bible is. It simply challenges. I just almost every, all our first, all our, all our immediate impressions. It always challenges the public opinion polls. It is always contrary to what we might expect. And that is actually Christianity in a nutshell. If you want to understand true Christianity, what you need to do is watch a romantic comedy. It's called Fools Rush In. Have you ever seen Fools Rush In? I don't remember the actors. I think it was one of the Friends actresses in there. And, and uh, it's your typical romantic comedy where at first they don't get along at all. Then over time they start to, they start to you know, they, they quibble and argue. But then they start to realize they have more in common than they thought, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, and of course, they eventually fall in love. And there's this moment where he turns to her and he says these, one, these amazingly well-written words. He says, you are everything I never knew I always wanted. Yeah, great line. You are everything I never knew I always wanted. And if, you, if, if, if Christianity is to be understood rightly, if following Jesus is to be understood rightly, you will find that it's the exact same way. That Christianity, that Jesus himself was everything you never knew that you always wanted. And that's very much the case for this. This text that we have in front of us is often, uh, is often called, has been called in the last 30 years uh, by various scholars, a text of terror. A text of terror. And the reason for that, and what we'll soon see, is that this text encourages submission, service to unjust authorities. It calls citizens, and even non-citizens, to submit to unjust political um, authority. It calls slaves to submit to degrading, humiliating, uh, humiliating circumstances at, uh, under, mas- under cruel and unjust masters. It calls wives to submit to, to, to husbands, to, to, be, to take a position of service to spouse. So you can imagine how unbelievable, controversial, how incredibly counterintuitive and countercultural a text like this is. And I want to ask you, to, to, I want to ask you, I want to urge you actually, to make, to not make the mistake of the loud American. You know what a loud American is? A loud American is someone who is visiting another culture. Let's say they're in Africa. Let's say they're in uh, Europe somewhere. Let's say, you know, anywhere overseas. And they just assume that the rest of the world's like America. They just assume that the rest of the world, America's the best. Our culture's the best. Our way of doing things is the best. And everyone else is backwards. No one else gets it. Totally ethnocentric. And so you can come to this text ethnocentrically. You can come to this text as someone, oh, we Americans, you know, we know what's best. All our values, we got it all figured out here. 
or you can actually enter into another culture. And if you've ever done that, if you've ever lived in a different context, a different culture, even within the United States, if you've ever left Missouri, you've been to other, and you actually live there long enough, you begin to realize that maybe some of your criticisms were premature. They were uncharitable. In fact, maybe they had a way of doing things that was actually better. It was actually at least respectable. Something you could go, oh, wait a minute. There's something here beautiful. And I think you'll see that for our text this morning. I'm going to read the text, and we're going to, we're going to talk about three different aspects of it. And, um, but just, so read, read this text, and, if, and, and, and let, it, let it challenge you. Yes, let it trouble you, but let it challenge you as well, and let it encourage you. First Peter chapter, chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. I'm going to read through the, the beginning of chapter 3, verse 7. Hear now the word of the Lord. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. That's the first exhortation. The second, verse verse, uh, 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And this long exhortation that runs uh, regarding authority. Verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. I'm sorry, how do you, how do you put to silence the, the, the ignorance of foolish people? By posting that article on Facebook, right? That's going to just change everyone's opinion so quickly, right? How do you change, how do you silence the ignorance of foolish people? By doing good, doing good. Verse 16, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God, it should be slaves of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, that's the, the brotherhood of Christ, the family of believers. Fear God, honor the emperor. Notice how much honor the emperor gets, just as much as everyone else. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Verse 18, it should read, slaves, not servants, slaves. These are people who are property. Slaves, be subject to your masters. So did you see this? Verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake, to every human institution. It's a general call to to submit oneself. Verse 18, specifically to slaves, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. That is not only to the good and gentle masters, but also to the unjust masters. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while, while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it to you if, when you sin and are, and, are beaten, and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Listen to this now. He's talking to slaves. For to this you have been called. Your situation of injustice 
your situation of degradation, your situation of misunderstanding, your situation of exploitation is not an accident. It's not okay. No one's warranting it. It's not an accident, though. There's a calling to be found in the midst of this hardship. For to, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. See, here in this oppressive, horrible, degrading situation, there's actual possibility for you to be like Christ. Isn't that amazing? You can be just like your Savior, your Redeemer, the one who's at the right hand of the Father. Verse 22, what's that example? What, What did he do? He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. He's speaking of his trial, Jesus' trial, his, his uh, trial before the, 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 the authorities, the, the political and religious authorities. When he reviled, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued, listen to this, entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He waited for justice. He himself bore our sins in his body, on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed, for you were straying. Whoa. You were straying like sheep. But you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Likewise, wives, and once again, be subject to your own husbands. So that even if some do not obey the word, speaking of God's word, that is, if they're not Christians, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the wearing of gold, or the putting on of clothes, but let your adornment be the hidden person of the heart with, imperishable be- with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. This is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, you are her daughters, if you do good, and do not fear anything that is frightening. Verse 7, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in all, and in, I'm sorry, live with your wives in an understanding way. That is, you could say, translate literally, liter, uh, you could say, live with your wives according to, to consideration, according to understanding, according to knowledge. Know your wife, actually understand her. Live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, the physically weaker vessel. Not mentally, not emotionally, the physically weaker vessel. Since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Okay. How many of you kids, how many of you kids have been at school and for whatever reason you've been left out you ever been out at recess and someone has made fun of you? I mean, you, maybe you, you wanted to play a game at recess and no one picked you to be on the team. You ever had that happen? 
Or perhaps you were picked, but you didn't really get to play, right? Because no one would pass you the ball. You're out there just running around. You're thinking, why, are you, why am I even out here? It's like I'm invisible. It's like, they don't even, it's like they don't even see me. See, that's hard. Why is that hard? It's hard because you feel left out, right? You feel like you don't count. You feel like you don't really belong. You're on the outside looking in. And that's exactly how Peter is addressing the Christians. He's already done it in the very beginning of chapter 1, verse 1, like I've already shared. He's doing it again here at the very beginning of our passage. Verse 11. Look at that verse again. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners, that is, as outsiders, we could say, as, as you might even say undocumented immigrants, as, as those who literally don't belong legally. They are, they are those who simply are on the margins of society. I urge you as sojourners and exiles, they are outsiders. They do not fit into their cultural context. A foreigner is an outsider. An exile is typically someone who has been sent away. They've been told, look, um, don't even bother showing up. You, you can go. Don't even expect to be picked for the team because you're just not who we want. So he addresses them as outsiders, as foreigners. And as we've also talked about, he addresses them as family, as those who are part of the family of God. How are they part of the family of God? Through faith in Jesus Christ. There's this person that God, whom, that God sent into the world, the creator sent him into the world, Jesus of Nazareth, a peasant Jew of the first century. And Peter says, if you align yourself with Jesus... If you bow your knee to him, if you surrender your life to him, you say, you know what, you're in charge. Here, take the reins. Here, sit in the driver's seat. If you surrender your life to him, you are welcomed into the family of God. You are a part of what the creator is doing in this world in overcoming evil. You are actually on the right side. And you're part of the family. And so he's saying here, Yes, you're foreigners, but your family members and your family members through, through faith in Jesus Christ. And why are you part of this family? Chapter 1 says, well, you're part of this family so that you can flourish, so you can bring flourishing. But all throughout this language of salvation that, that Peter uses for chapter 1 and in chapter 2, this language of salvation is the language of flourishing. It's the language of healing. So why, 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 do, we have, why do we say, you know what, I'm not going to try fitting into the world anymore. I'm going to be part of the family of God by faith in Jesus Christ. So why? So that I can flourish. And how do we do that? We do that. The central exhortation of chapter 1 says Peter calls the Christians to be holy, to be different, to be other not holier than thou, not better than, not superior to, but actually holy, different. He says, don't think that you can somehow become a Christian, enter the family of God, and live in the same way as if somehow you're going to flourish by doing what you've always done. That's like, you know, I'm going I'm to improve, improve my lungs by continuing smoking. I'm, I'm going to improve my health by continuing to eat junk food. You've got to do something different. 
So he calls on the holiness, and then he, he, he in, in, as Juan talked about last week in chapter 2, uh, really verses through 4 through 10, you have this beautiful exhortation to show how they're different. Everything that they are aligns to the person of Jesus. You know that you're different as you align yourself to the cornerstone. I'm going to be the right kind of stone because I'm aligned with the cornerstone, and I'm going to be like Christ. I'm going to follow in his way. I'm going to be part of the people of God, the temple of God. But in that way, and then he ex- actually exhorts them in verse 11 and following, how do I do that? So, so understand, so I'm just going to give you the rubric here for the rest of the sermon. The idea is very simply this. To be the family of God by faith, to be the family of God means being three things. If I'm going to align myself with a cornerstone, I'm going to do three things. The first, are you ready for this? This is so beautiful to me. The first To be family means being a skeptic of yourself. Being a skeptic of yourself. So, uh, so beautiful. The second thing is to be a skeptic of yourself. The second thing is to be a supporter of the city. And the third is to be a servant to every authority. We are different from the world when we are those three things. When we are a skeptic of ourselves, when we say no to ourselves. We are different, we are holy, we actually lead to flourishing for self and for others when we are supporters of the city, saying yes to the city. And third, we are holy, we are different when we are servants to every authority. That is, when we serve, when we are those who are serving the undeserving. Okay, so let's walk through those. In verse 11, Paul say, Peter says, if you want to be different. You want to be part of the family. You want to be holy. If you want flourishing in your life and in others' lives, if you want to be part of the solution and not part of the problem, he says, be a skeptic of yourself. Be a skeptic of yourself. Say no to yourself. Look at verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage against your soul. It's powerful. He's saying, you know what? There are parts of you that are destroying you. There are are desires that you have, that I have, that are actually trying to destroy me. They are waging war against me. Listen, the point of what he's saying here, of saying no to self, is to be on the side of yourself, of your soul. Okay, There are desires that we have that are false. Here they're called fleshly. Fleshly not because they're physical, like there's something wrong with the body or something. That's not that. Fleshly here refers not to physical, to the physical self. It refers to the all too familiar yet false self. That first impression, that first desire, that first drive, that first impulse, that first fear. And he says, those things are waging war against you, and they're not the real you. Okay, so he's saying be skeptical of yourself. And being skeptical of yourself, this is important, is not to be cynical about yourself. Telling yourself no is not the same as, tell, as calling yourself a nobody. And we all know this, don't we? Have you ever indulged in, in the all-too-familiar self's desires? Desires for status, affirmation, I mean, we're desiring status, and so we kind of brag about ourselves. And we think, oh, what was I doing? Or maybe we desire productivity, and we just work relentlessly. 
and we estrange ourselves from family. And we think, what was I doing? We, in the name and desire for control, maybe we speak harsh words. In the desire for pleasure, we just, we just give in. In the desire for wealth, we just rel- relentlessly seek more and more angles. And we indulge in those desires. And then one morning we look into the mirror and what? We just don't like what we see. We just don't. And we think, you know, I don't want this to be me anymore. This is not the me that I want to be. And Peter is saying to be part of the family of God is to wage war against that parts of us that are waging war against us. It leads us to a key question this morning. Every one of you, I don't care what, what, what philosophy, I don't care what religion you are, I don't care where you're coming from. My question for you is this. Who is the real you? Who's the real you? Because I don't know about you, I can be all over the map. Fears, desires, passions, thoughts, all these, you know, one moment I'm, I'm going to do this, next moment I'm going to do that. There's the Monday Bruce, there's the Tuesday Bruce. There's the Monday afternoon Bruce. There's the happy hour Bruce, right? You know, right? There's all these different, yeah, I think a good idea if I did this right now. I think that's the dumbest idea in the world, right? Is it the January Bruce? The February Bruce? Who's the, well, the real Bruce? Please stand up. And we live in a culture and in a time where, listen to this, the first stuff, the first self is affirmed as the true self. And it's one of the scariest things. It is. Because, listen, if you know anything about the history of philosophy, the history of Western thought, you know that in the last about three to four centuries, the, 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 the concept of human freedom has been radically redefined. Now, this is not even a Christian idea. I mean, the ancient philosophers understood that true freedom was found in what? Can you imagine this? In actually harnessing the passions. That true freedom was found in self-control. And then through the Enlightenment, through, um, I'm not even going into it now, I'm thinking of guys like Rene Descartes and others, boy, this notion of, you know what, real freedom is just, is not actually in harnessing and, and somehow controlling myself. You know, freedom is found as doing whatever I want, whenever I want to. And it's not a moral thing. It's the questions about what leads to real flourishing. What's going to lead to the me that I want to be? So Paul, Peter, I'm sorry, Peter, he exhorts us to be the family of God, to be holy, to be different. Not necessarily think of being different. But for the sake of flourishing, if we're not going to be part of the problem, if I'm actually going to end up to be able to look at myself in the mirror, I've got to first say no to self, to say no to self, to be skeptical of self. See, the idea is that our automatic, immediate self isn't necessarily our most advantageous self. A number of years ago, Sarah and I were bowling with friends. We were out bowling in a bowling alley. And in the bowling lane to, next to us, a, th- a three-year-old girl who was incredibly bossy. I mean, incredibly bossy. Just always bossing everybody around, telling what to do. And her mom says, you know, she's always been that way. She's going to be a CEO. And then she said, for Enron. This was like 20, this is, this is pre-Enron disaster. And I thought, how, and later on, as I looked at this illustration, I thought, how fitting 
She probably did end up a, 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 a CEO for Enron. Listen to me, parents. I urge you, as a fellow failing parent, to model a suspicion of self, a skepticism of self. Model a daily battle. I don't care if you're losing the battle every day, but you are battling aspects of you. Model that for your children. And then you love them by not letting them give in to their fears and desires. If you give your child over to their fears, you know they're irrational, but you let them have their way. You are not. Are you loving them? Wrestle with that. One of the most loving things you can do is keep your children from what they want most. One of the most loving things you can do is to keep your children from what they fear most and let them see that actually what they're fearing is not worth fearing. It's the most liberating, freeing thing you can do. There are times when my parents gave me over to my fears and I, I thought, you hate me, don't you? <laughs> right? But they, they love me. They love me enough to not let me, not, not, excuse me, to, lot, to not let me have what I wanted. Okay? I had an old teacher, Latin teacher, high school who said most of the world lives in misery because they have not gotten what they wanted while the rest of the world lives in misery because they did careful what you ask for careful what you want peter's saying watch out there are fleshly desires say no say no to self that's first Say no to self. Second is to say yes to the city. The first one is be skeptical of self. The, 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 the second one is to be a supporter of the city. Where do we see this? Look in verse 12. Keep your conduct, he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. A better word would be noble. He's talking about among the Gentiles, outside, in the community. Keep your public conduct. Conduct yourselves in a way that is noble. In, in town, in the community, in your neighborhoods, among, in your workplaces. And that noble isn't just a private piety. He's speaking here of noble deeds that are actually community-focused. They're community-beneficial. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good, so they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of, of visitation. He's saying, look, to be, a, to be a member of the family of God, to live a holy life, is to actually be out there in the community, in your workplace, in your classrooms, doing things that are for the good, for the benefit of the city. See how that works? It's a, be- it's a beautiful idea. It's a beautiful idea. He's saying be a supporter of the city. Say yes to the city. Listen to this. This is from um, a second century letter written by an author. We don't know who the author was. Written by a guy, written to a person named Diognetus. Okay, this is a letter to, uh, to, uh, called a letter to Diognetus, a, sec- a second century letter. Listen to this description of Christians. Christians are no different from other people in terms of their country of origin, their language, what language they speak, and their customs. Nowhere do they inhabit cities of their own. They're not isolated in a little ghetto. Nor do they use a strange dialect, nor do they live life out of the ordinary. They live in their respective countries, but only as resident aliens, as foreigners, the same Greek word. They participate in all things as citizens, and yet they endure all things as foreigners. 
Every foreign territory is a homeland for them, and every homeland a foreign territory. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying on the one hand, they live as foreigners, and yet they, 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 they act as though this is their homeland. They invest in it. This is, this is what they're all about. They, they actually they, they go into their neighborhoods and say, oh, I'm not from here. Well, they may not be from there, but they treat it as if they were. It's a beautiful description of the people of God saying, you know what, I may not be from here. And I may not, this place may reject me, but I'm going to be for this place. You know, right now your elders and deacons are reading through a book called Practicing the King's Economy. It's beautiful. And it's all about how do we think about money? How do we think about economics from a, from a Christian perspective? How does the cross of Jesus Christ make us think differently about the bottom line? How does it make us think differently about how we can use our money? And it's so beautiful, some of the, the stories that were found and the ways that, that we as, a, as, a, as your leaders are trying to think creatively and prayerfully about how can we actually help our communities and neighborhoods. Because so often helping hurts. We know that, right? We know that sometimes so often we see government programs or we see different people and we ourselves try to help people, right? Just all you got to do is come across someone who asks you for 20, no, they come across, you know, I'm walking down the street or something. And what do they do? They ask you for money. I was with a friend of mine so one, one time, and this, this, this guy came up to me, and he said, hey, can I have some money? And my, my friend, uh, was, he said he gave him some money, and the guy walked away. And he looked at me, and he said, did I just help him? Helping is a really difficult thing. And so we're, we're, we're reading together, we're wrestling with this idea of what does it look like to be a positive influence in our communities and contexts. Let me just give you a few ways of doing that. Just a few ways. First is simply Hospitality. Simply hospitality. Welcoming people into your home, people who are different from you, not family, not biological family, not your best friends, not your boss, the getting good. This is not about anything like that. It's about inviting people into your home and into your life. It's about, it's about and just learning their story. Boy, as Sarah and I have done that in the year and a half we've been here since moving to St. Louis, boy, have we just, I can't tell you the number of people we've met. And at first, you're like, you kind of, your temptation is to kind of judge them, kind of try to put them in a pigeonhole, but then you get to know them and you listen to them. You have know, a fellow basketball player of mine, we have a play at the Y, and just a really an interesting guy. He would show up early mornings, early Friday mornings, and often, and listen, please take this in the right way, all right? Just, just give, me, give me a chance to explain myself. He would often show up, and I could smell alcohol in his breath. It's a Friday morning. And he's, he's a heavy drinker. And only recently did I meet up with him. We hung out together and found out that two years ago, his 15-year-old daughter took her life. He's estranged from uh, his wife right now. He is hurting. He's hurting deeply. He's so alone. All you got to do is just get to know people. Get to invite them into your life. Another guy that I met, just I, we're, our house is being renovated, our new house, we bought a house and it's being renovated and we were there recently. I was talking to one of the guys, kind of rough guy, rough around the edges, you know, and it was just, you know, all these guys, you know, they're, just, they, they're, they're smokers, they, 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 you know, they have colorful language, all that sort of thing. And you could immediately kind of judge that. You could be, oh, you know, whatever. I didn't know he's hard talking to these guys. And one of them was like, yeah, I got four kids. It's like, I, I was working a previous job and the contractor I was working for didn't, he didn't, he didn't pay me the last three paychecks. I'm like, well, 
how are you doing? I mean, are you, are you making it? I mean, are you guys, how are you guys doing financially? He's like, I don't know. See, if you just listen to people, if you just invite them into your lives, invite them into your stories, he and I are, and we're going to hang out tomorrow after work. Hey, well, let's get together. We can buy a drink. We get to know them. We're very excited to get to know to know them. It's just this tiny little thing. So hospitality is one way, but think of those, those of you who are at work, some of you are in places of influence at your workplace. And you know what a, what a wonderful way to, a thing to do is you can actually begin to say, hey, what if the bottom line, we've we got to be mindful of the bottom line, but what if we actually created a couple jobs where we can invite persons who have questionable backgrounds, maybe they've got a, a conviction, maybe they've got whatever it would be, but we're going to invite them into our context to do some work. We're actually going to pay them more than market value, and we're going to see how to help them get, get a, just a, a, a job, to keep and to keep that job. And we're going, to, we're going to equip them, we're going to actually give them skills, and this is actually going to be a company program. We're a company, this is one of the things that we're going to do as a way of giving to our community. Some of you have that kind of influence. You, you're in that kind of place where you can say, you know what, we're not just going to think about the bottom line, we're going to do so, we're actually going to give back to our community in a way that actually creates jobs. Creates jobs for those who are, who are in, in at-risk situations that would make it difficult for them to actually get a job. I think of a summer internship program, a summer internship program for teens, for at-risk teens. It's one of the most successful, non, uh, um, most successful job, uh, um, job creation slash crime prevention inter, uh, uh, programs that's ever been done. One was done recently in Chicago. And some of these, these companies, they actually started bringing in these teenagers during the summer for like a 10-week internship. And what does it do? It keeps them off the streets, away from drugs, and they're actually learning skills. That's something that you could do in your workplace. Why? Because we say yes to the city. We say no to ourselves. We say yes to the city. We are skeptics of ourselves. We are supporters of the city. And finally, we are servants to every authority. I won't take long to do this. I know it's just there's this section here. I've just, just you see three different exhortations. Verse 13 says, Be subject or submit yourselves to, for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Verse, two, uh, verse 18, Servants or slaves, be subject or submit yourselves to your masters with, and with all respect, not only to the good and gentle masters, but also to the unjust masters. And then chapter 3, verse 1, likewise, wives, be subject or submit yourself to your own husbands. So that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. So listen, now this is so controversial because at first it seems that what, Paul is, what Peter is doing is simply reinforcing existing uh, exploitation. And that's not at all what Peter is doing. It's just crazy. To think that Peter, listen to this, Peter is calling those in very difficult situations to a, to a way of thinking about their situation that is empowering. He says, you can right now, right here, right now, in this difficult situation, you can love, you can give, you can serve. You can do the utterly unexpected thing of launching a love offensive against your enemies. Actually coming alongside them in the ways that are not corrupt, but in ways that every way that you can, and giving to them and supporting them and encouraging them. Because at the end of the day, you know that the roles were reversed. 
what? You wouldn't be any better. We're no different. We're not any better. See, the thing is, if we had that kind of power, if we were in the position of the emperor, if we were in the position of the governors, if we were in the position of the masters, if we were in the positions of the head of households, would we actually be any better? And do you notice he doesn't address them? He doesn't say, hey, you know, you emperors or you, 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 you civil servants, you do this. He doesn't say, hey, you masters, you do this. He doesn't do that. Peter, Paul does, but Peter doesn't. You know why? Because there probably weren't any of them in the church. They didn't care for religion. They, they, they were not misfits. They were not outsiders. They were the people who were on the inside. They were the ones who, were, who, who owned everything. They were the ones who were having their way. They didn't see any interest in Christianity. They didn't want to see the world change. They liked how the world was. They were on top. And they're outside the family of God. So often those who win in life fail. They fail miserably. And our greatest, our greatest, the greatest things that ever happen to us are our failures. Our failures. So brothers and sisters, if we want to be a part of the family, if we want to follow Christ, if we want to be seen as different as other, if we want to be an agent of flourishing, we need to say no to self. To be skeptics of self, we need to say yes to the city. And we need to say, we need, we need to, be, to be those who are supporters, who are servants, who are slaves of it to every authority. We need to think about what that might look like for you. What does that mean? Some of you are in really difficult uh, uh, work situations. I mean, really difficult. What would it look like? I'd love to sit down and pray with you and dream with you and think creatively with you. Some of you are in different marital circumstances where you think, man, I just, every bone in my body just wants out. And what Peter is not calling them to do is simply to be a doormat. He's calling them to a shrewd, a sly, a self-sacrificing service to those who are corrupt. He's calling them to serve the undeserving. Why? Why would we saw it? But Peter, I love how Peter addresses, he does this beautiful Christological exhortation. Why? Not to whom? To the slaves. Look what he says in verse, um, verse 21. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin, Neither was, the, was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He's saying, look, does anyone know what it's like to serve? Does anyone know what it's like to live in a situation that is so unjust? Is there anyone who has been more wronged more humiliated, more degraded, more ignored than Jesus? Is there anyone who can say, that's not fair more than Jesus? The answer is no. He went all the way down serving the undeserving. And who were the undeserving? Who were they? He tells us, verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Whose sins? Our sins. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. 
for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Listen, there's probably no more more important question that you could ask yourself every morning when you wake up. What do I deserve? And theologically, Sunday school-wise, you, you know, oh yeah, I deserve, you know, I deserve to be told to go away, I deserve to go to hell, whatever. But what do you feel? So do you, I wake up in the morning, I'm just full of entitlement. I've been gypped as a husband, gypped as a father, gypped as a pastor, gypped as you name it, full of entitlement, and I'm full of garbage. I'm full of myself. And the gospel, Peter's calling us to look at the one who emptied himself the one who truly deserved deserved what was best, the one who truly had lived a life that was deserving, totally surrendered himself and was utterly treated unfairly so that we might never be treated fairly. He was treated in a way that he did not deserve so that we might never have to be treated as we deserve, so that we might not treat others as they deserve so that we might indeed be selfless, be gracious, that we might look to those who've wronged us and love them to go down loving, not in some glorious way, quietly. The world doesn't see, totally misunderstood, because that's exactly how Jesus did it for us. Brothers and sisters, do we see who Christ is for us? He loves you. He loves you. He laid down his life for you. And he calls us to be skeptical of ourselves, to be skeptics of self, supporters of the city, and servants to every authority, serving the undeserving. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we marvel at how counterintuitive this text is. Lord, when the world around us is demanding its rights, urging an equality that is ever a pot at the end of the rainbow. How will we ever know, Father, when we're all equal? Who gets to decide? Who gets to sit in the place of judgment, of authority, only to know that there are some who are more equal than others? Father, it is so, so uh, futile. Father, thank you that you call us to something we can actually do, to surrender our lives, to serve the undeserving know that indeed that is exactly what Jesus did for us. Father, I pray that for everyone here, there would be indeed a new focus, a renewed focus, a desire to save themselves by losing themselves, of laying down their life that they might, they might actually live their life, a suspicion of self that leads to a truer, full self. Father, I pray that we would not ignore those around us. How can we ignore our neighborhoods, our communities, our colleagues? Oh, Father, I pray for those especially here today who are empty nesters, who are retirees. The world is telling them every moment of every day that they own their lives, that they can do whatever they want, that they, they deserve their financial freedom. They deserve their, their, to do whatever they want. It's their time, their schedule. Father, I pray for them specifically. What a dangerous phase of life to live in. What a scary stage of life to live in. 
Father, I pray that the words of Peter would break through to their hearts and souls this morning. Pray that they would see what true flourishing is, that they would reject the American dream and live for the dream of the one who has laid down his life for them, for us. Father, hear our prayers. We love you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.